Welcome to the Pulse Podcast, personal conversations about life, leadership, and legacy with inspiring founders, entrepreneurs, and leaders of industry. I am R. Adam Smith, founder of Wisdom Board. I am pleased to host this podcast episode. Wisdom Board is a fast-growing digital leadership platform powered by curated content, blue chip services, valuable human capital resources, and an expansive expert network. Wisdom Board is dedicated to empowering excellence for private companies at the board level. Today, we are joined by James Steiker, the founder of SCS ESOP Strategies, and it's really a pleasure uh, to have him on the show today. James, welcome to the Wisdom Board Pulse podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, you've been uh, quite busy over the years, uh, being one of the foremost experts in advising private owners and uh, business uh, business leaders and their uh, small and mid-sized companies to consider and execute ESOP strategies. Uh, just for our listeners, if you could share a little bit on the uh, the original genesis and definition of an ESOP, that would be great. Sure. ESOPs are actually a creature dating back really to the 1950s, if you will, where a fairly creative investment banker figured out that average working people could acquire companies by using retirement plan assets. So he constructed a rather jerry-rigged approach to do this that worked and got approvals, fell by the name of Louis Kelso. And uh, he was uh, an, a very enthusiastic advocate believing that ESOPs were the way to save the American economy from destruction by capitalists and even takeover by communists. So he wrote a book at one point, How to Turn 100 Million Americans into Capitalists, advocating the ESOP idea. And it would have been a footnote, except that he was contacted or met on an airplane, as the legend goes, uh, Senator Russell Long from Louisiana, head of the Senate Tax Committee son of the notable populist Huey Long, noted for saying share the wealth in the 30s. And Russell Long being a good Southern populist, but uh, not believing in confiscating wealth from others, thought ESOPs were a terrific non-confiscatory way to broaden economic ownership and became an enthusiastic advocate and when Congress implemented the rather extensive retirement plan law called ERISA, which was really the first major regulation of retirement plans, Senator Long advocated and made sure in his role as committee chair that uh, ESOPs were included as a legitimate structure. And then we had about a 12 year period of tax bills being passed every year or two and as head of the Senate Tax Committee, he buried a good tax break for ESOPs in virtually every bill. So by the time I arrived on the scene in the mid-80s, beginning my career, ESOPs had become a somewhat tax-favored strategy for owners of closely held companies to sell their companies internally rather than externally. That's fascinating for... Uh those that are students and passionate about the private equity space and considering the legends in the space, uh, 
uh, Kelso is a name uh, that's very well known and respected uh, given his founding of the Kelso and Company in 1971. And uh, it's interesting to look at his background as, as well because um, he was a part-time economist when he was at the Navy and he, he uh, wrote a whole manifesto on, on new capitalism and the fallacy of full employment. And then later, only later when he found uh, another economist buddy uh, named the name Mortimer Adler, he began to actually produce paperwork uh, and then incorporated that into, into a Kelson company when they did their first ESOP of a, a newspaper chain. Yep, back in about 1955 or so. And uh, yeah, he was a very interesting fellow. I had the pleasure of seeing him speak very late in life. And some of the more prominent folks doing ESOPs in the early days came out of Kelso and Company. Of course, the reference to him as a part-time economist was said either with appreciation or critique, depending on one's point of view because he was considered fairly far out of the mainstream. But one of the things he said back then that's certainly relevant now is that for all of the things that uh, Marx was wrong about in the 19th century, he was right fundamentally that money was going to find capital more readily than labor, and that capital would become more valuable and labor would become less valuable. And we would have destabilizing income inequality as a result. And of course, in the 1950s, that didn't look altogether obvious. Now it looks a little bit more interesting as an insight. And of course, his approach was, how do we deal with this without over, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater? And how do we have an economic system that has more broad-based ownership and participation? Don't get me started with my name being Adam Smith, because not only uh, do I have to keep up with what you're saying, but uh, I think we're all unfortunately trying to write the next chapter of what uh, what the invisible hand and laissez-faire economics works in an open economy. Actually, uh, Kelso was struggling with the name of his book um, called The Capitalist Manifesto, which says here that they were struggling to uh, come up with a better term than universal capitalism, and then later came up with the name called binary economics, which I, I don't even frankly know what that means, but I know that today everybody wants to to be uh, on the better side of the track in terms of bringing our society towards uh, a more balanced capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. I, I'd like to uh, differentiate conscious capitalism with, with uh, stakeholder capitalism, but maybe walk us through a couple of more stories or case studies of an ESOP where you, uh, you brought some of these you know, capital restructurings to the solution of a family health business or a family office health business and, and how that worked for them? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of examples out there of companies. And, you know, one of the ones here in the Philly area where it's got a fairly prominent evangelical uh, supporter of employee ownership is New Age Industries, which is a has nothing to do with new age. It happened to have picked that name up well before the era of uh, gems and crystals because they make flexible, uh, you know, uh, basically highly uh, sanitary tubing for the pharmaceutical and food industries. And Ken Baker is the son of the founder. And Ken, I think, decided early on that he wanted an alternative to selling his company out to the highest bidder, be it strategic or be it private equity. If you want to hear a critique of private equity in mildly profane terms, all you have to do is 
poke him a little bit and you will hear it. He started uh, the Aesop Road about 15 years ago and sold, you know, essentially 30% of his company to the Aesop and sold 20% six years later for twice as much as he got for the 30% and sold the remainder a couple of years ago for some multiple of the share price of the second transaction. And he attributes a lot of the success to the fact that he got people involved and they have a culture and a belief about being an employee-owned company. He will point out readily there is a bust of his father in the lobby. And as he says, if we had sold it to somebody else, the jobs might be in China, the bust would be in the trash. So he takes great pride in having preserved the opportunity and the wealth creation. And he's very quick to point out he did very well for himself in the process that he did not, you know, give away lots of, you know, what he had, he and his family had achieved to do this. But now he sees lots of people benefiting. They've created, you know, 20 or 25 millionaires already at the company. If you were there at the beginning and you're retiring now, you've got a pretty good chance of having, you know, a seven figure uh, retirement. That's great. And, and given the empowerment of the ESOP to the broader employee base, um, what happens when uh, there is uh, uh, knowledge and desire of the benefit of the ESOP, but there's not enough leadership to actually go down that road? So who, who's making the decisions in the ESOP and how do you guide your, 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 your clients at the, at the board level or the management level, uh, given our focus on, on governance and uh, best and breed corporate governance, uh, let's say in terms of stakeholder capitalism, of course, it's more more uh, quirky binary capitalism that, that Kelsey came up with. You've caught me fresh on the topic because I am teaching a course this semester on stakeholder capitalism. That is the fact, the title of the course. What you see is in ESOP companies, there's a misnomer that suddenly we've become something more akin to a cooperative and we're going to assemble the troops and vote every time we want to buy a new piece of equipment or and nobody's going to want to sweep the floor because they're owners and owners don't have to sweep the floor. And in reality, ESOP companies are in form traditionally managed. They have a board of directors, they have senior management. Obviously, if one is going to sell the company internally to an ESOP, it becomes really uh, the onus of that founder to uh, initially identify an appropriate board with the appropriate expertise and also to make sure that there's good successor management if they're the active senior management of the company. What distinguishes successful ESOP companies is really not so much the governance structure as much as the management behavior and employee participation that's involved. There's a lot of data out there, uh, particularly the National Center for Employee Ownership has assembled a lot of this data, readily available on their website, which I will cheerfully plug, uh, that tells us that companies that combine employee ownership with a high degree of participation and involvement of employees at the job site slash shop floor level, meaning letting people have input over things they are directly around and have knowledge about basically results in companies that are 
success, significantly more successful, both measured by productivity and by profitability relative to their non-employee owned peers. So that's really the secret sauce. A lot of folks speculate on why this is. Again, the intuition of many owners is that, well, they now have a stake in the action and therefore they'll work a little harder or a little smarter because they're owners. And that doesn't really seem to be in real life the mechanism. It's not clear that the ownership levels are high enough you know, that you know, one sees such a direct connection between personal wealth and behavior. What does seem to be interesting is that employees care much more about the behavior of their fellow employees. It creates a culture. You know, if you imagine a traditional company, everybody's an individual free agent. They are not playing together on a team. You know, it's a little bit more like a golf tournament where everybody is playing their own ball. And when you create an ESOP company, all of the sudden, what other people do matters to your personal wealth. And so you see a lot more team oriented behavior and also a lot more cultural, you know, weeding out of the, you know, the weak or the unwilling folks. In other words, if I'm sitting in a desk and the guy or gal next to me is on ESPN or Facebook and social media all day or watching porn or doing whatever it is that people do with computers when they don't work. In, in a non-employee-owned company, I mostly view that as management's problem. Why aren't they making you know, these guys work better? And in an ESOP company, it's you know, matters now what the, what the other folks are doing. I'm not gonna be so willing to pull my weight if others aren't, then I feel like they're free riders on the creation of value in the company. So at the board level, you want people who are sensitized to this. You need a board that gets that you have to do the traditional management and board functions of oversight and accountability, but you want to make sure your management team is taking advantage of the engagement and involvement of the owners. So um, let's say we have a uh, $100 million private company and um, 1,000 employees, and there's a, a couple of founders and a board of directors, and they want to empower the, uh, the organization, and they don't want to involve a, a private equity partner, or they don't want to sell, uh, or they don't want to leverage up uh, just extensively with leverage. They want to really uh, create an equity option plan to create uh, uh, greater greater incentives involvement by the uh, the next level of management but there's only so much equity that you can issue to top the c-suite or the top management so so the esop what uh, is a fascinating structure because you go through you can go through the whole organization and you can use your financing uh, capabilities to to accomplish that so walk us through the actual transaction mechanisms for the ESOP. And then if you can also share with us, uh, you know, down the road when the company is able to grow and double or triple in size, how does that governing body of the organization think about monetizing that equity? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, obviously, the challenge with management buyouts as opposed to ESOPs, as you alluded to, are twofold. One is chronically management doesn't have any money. Very few companies have paid their management well enough that management's in a position to offer cash. 
So management's going to have to borrow a boatload of money. And the problem with borrowing a boatload of money is you got to pay it back. And the problem with a management buyer is you've got to have earnings, you've then got to pay taxes, and then you've got to pay it back, and then it's taxable income to uh, the whole thing has been taxable to the seller. So we've made the government a more than 50% partner in our cash flow when all is said and done. In an ESOP buyout, what we have going on is we are creating a trust that's a retirement trust for the benefit of employees. We are using the credit of the company to borrow money. And we're using that money to buy some or all of the ownership from the existing shareholders, perhaps with the selling shareholders providing some of the financing, depending on what kind of a transaction we're doing. What we know then and what motivates us from the tax side is that when the debt has to be repaid back, the company can make tax deductible contributions to the ESOP that it can use to repay debt. So we have a tax deduction functionally equivalent to the principal repayment of the loan, which is different from all of us who have mortgages or do management buyouts where we've got to use after-tax dollars to repay principal. We also have a tax break for the selling shareholders potentially if we are or become a C corporation where if they take what they get and invest it in stocks or bonds of any other domestic operating corporation, they can indefinitely defer capital gains tax on the transaction. So we have about the only way to turn a dollar of corporate profit into a dollar of individual shareholder investment without paying the toll collector at either the corporate or the individual level. And fun, fun, finally, we have a wonderful tax break for S-corporation ESOPs where, as we know, if we're a shareholder in an S-corporation, we get this nasty document at the end of the year called a K-1 telling us, well, our corporation didn't pay any taxes, but we have to pay taxes on our share of the corporate income. Well, an ESOP is a tax-exempt retirement plan trust. So unlike us who weep a little bit and gnash our teeth, uh, the ESOP takes the K-1 and fundamentally throws it away because it doesn't pay any taxes on its share of corporate income. So if, like Ken Baker's company, we have created a 100% ESOP-owned S-corporation, we have fundamentally created a tax-free organization. Despite people's uh, uh, patriotism in our country, I think most people would prefer to pay less taxes. So that's something that they should follow up with, and I think as a side note, uh, given we have a couple of minutes left, is that um, those that are interested in learning more about the ESOP, they can, of course, be in touch with Jim and his team at the company, but also their website has a section of ESOP news and, and knowledge. Also, I noticed that uh, there is um, um, support of this concept by a, a range of uh, characters, not just uh, not just capitalists and financial types, but uh, there's Mark Cuban and there's others that are very much about empowering employees. And there's also a gentleman at KKR who's doing a great job, I think, Pete uh, Stavros, uh, for a various amount of uh, ESOP uh, transactions. Maybe you can make a, a comment on some of the recent KKR activity or other, uh, other larger ESOPs going on. Um, and maybe even that could be relevant to the SPAC structure as well. I think the first interesting point is that ESOPs have, have historically been 
hugely bipartisan with the strongest support ironically coming at each of the poles of the parties. Now there's the biggest supporter of ESOPs in the Senate, Bernie Sanders. Biggest supporters in the House historically, Dana Rohrbacher was the most notorious fellow and he was you know, pretty much at the other end of the world from uh, Mr. Sanders. Uh, when we do trade association things, we get all sorts of interesting bipartisan characters. One of the things you will know is if you go to some of those events, you know that half of the time you will be holding your nose, depending on what your beliefs happen to be about who's ever talking, because you're going to be seeing people with strong views from each side of the political spectrum. And we are getting some more attention from the, what I'd call the sort of more conventional finance world. What uh, uh, the fellow at you know, KKR is doing is, is wonderful. Uh, I'm part of a not-for-profit that's trying to create, do more creation of uh, ESOPs by supporting state employee ownership centers that will you know, provide more information because frankly, the biggest enemy of ESOPs out there is ignorance. I mean, when people ask me, why doesn't everybody do this? These tax breaks sound great, it's good, it's all of that. Well, it's not a fit for every owner in every company, or it's not even a fit for most owners in most companies, but it is a fit for a good number. But our biggest enemy is ignorance. Uh, ESOPs are complex. They are different. They have a different rhythm and style, not the advisory community. Unfortunately, we are not as successful in being as well paid as the people who promote private equity and third party sales. So it's not surprising that the corporate finance community is more encouraging of sales to other people than sales internally to ESOP. So you know, we have a huge education um, barrier to overcome. You know, what we're seeing is that over the medium term, the internet has turned out to be a great thing for ESOP. When I would go speak to a group 20 years ago in the pre everybody knowing how to use Google days, I'd have to start with what is an ESOP and describe what it was and how you very often I might have somebody walk out saying, what do you mean I can't own my employees? They thought employee stock ownership was an ownership plan for them. Uh, and now, of course, when I talk to people about ESOPs, the ones who get to me have typically already been all over the internet looking at varying pieces of information. So I think we're in a bit of a growth period. We have the so-called silver tsunami of uh, baby boomers retiring and figuring out what to do with their companies. We're a good cultural fit for a lot of them, not because of progressive politics per se, but because uh, baby boomers are retiring in a very different style than the last few generations. It's much more of a evolution from often from CEO to uh, you know, board chair um, to board member and working in, at a reduced rate. And of course, most of the folks who are successful entrepreneurs are often quite allergic to the idea of working for other people. That's how they started their own company in the first place. I mean, the, the standard story is I needed a job and I didn't wanna work for anybody else. And so for those folks selling internally where they can remain involved and you know, you know, preserve the legacy of the company, you know, that's not the only goal. Obviously, money matters and all sorts of other considerations come into play. 
but we're a pretty good cultural fit for the baby boom generation. And that's why I think we're seeing a fair bit of growth. That's great. Well, you've been very helpful in explaining to, uh, to me and, and all of us that will uh, be hearing this podcast over the, uh, the future to learn more about the ESOP structure. Maybe they should come up with a, a revised branding campaign, uh, you know, equity, all, everybody gets equity or something like that. But uh, going back to your um, initial reference to the heritage of this modern uh, economic structure, um, if it was up to, to Kelso, who I think is now now past uh, their original um, uh, classical uh, economic uh, paper was was called the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics. I don't think that would have gone over very very well, uh, but it is interesting. I would I would say anyone who has a, a more wonky economic uh, interest should should look into the binary economics uh, that that he was pretty early on in that that modified capitalism where there's there's more more balance and more motivation and, and equity being distributed out in terms of to to dividends like an LLC structure essentially to the to employees. Um, and lastly I would reference that in terms of where where you're you're going teaching about stakeholder capitalism and where you know we're we're thinking about caring capitalism, conscious capitalism and that wisdom board wanting to to suggest and empower the boards of these private companies that could be doing ESOPs to think more broadly than just the profits, because ultimately, if the organization can empower their their employees and redistribute and redirect their profits wisely into making a stronger company, then the company can not only be worth more, but also survive um, and sustain itself more more robustly in the future. And of course, I would, I would mention uh, then, of course, that we do see some number of ESOP companies becoming benefit corporations, which are state law level tools that allow boards to consider more broadly, you know, public benefits in considering, you know, whether companies should be sold and how they should act. And, you know, we have a number, you know, New Age, Ken Baker's company is a benefit corporation. Branded companies that people may know that are ESOP owned in whole or part of companies like King Arthur Flower and Recology and Eileen Fisher. Uh, so I think you're seeing some governance development now as well. That's great. Well, uh, your colleagues, Ken Winko and others are really um, enjoying working in this area, making uh, the lives, the economic lives and the uh, cultural power and, and, and empowerment of, of the organizations uh, uh, more robust for the uh, for your, your clients. Lastly, it's interesting that the, the number of, of those involved in ESOPs appears to be something quite large in terms of the, the percentage of the workforce. I calculate something like 7% or 8% of the workforce is actually involved in ESOP at 11 million people. So when I think about that and back to the original definition of the corporation, uh, thinking of the, the historical context of these definitions is uh, originally defined as the body of the people um, in terms of the Latin definition of, of the corporation. So it's interesting to tie that back into your um, to your mission and congratulations on building, building such a great organization. Jim, it's been a pleasure to include you as a guest today in Wisdom Board's Pulse podcast series. I've enjoyed learning more about your professional career experiences and interests and success at the firm. Much appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and uh, really, really appreciate being with you today. Pulse is a digital collection of personal conversations with respected private company experts. Pulse listeners enjoy enlightening lessons, wisdom, and journeys of interesting people. 
Pulse is a production of Wisdom Board, a trusted leadership brand dedicated to empowering private companies to achieve excellence in the boardroom. Wisdom Board lives on LinkedIn and online at wisdomboard.co. Please subscribe to our podcast, available on all major channels, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. I am R. Adam Smith, founder of Wisdom Board. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Board Pulse podcast.